Welcome to the Engaged Midwife Podcast. This is Missy. And this is Kara. Uh, there is a total um, merging of worlds happening right now for you and I. There is? Yes. What? Um, because I'm in my Taylor Swift era. Oh, <laughs> all of Kansas you're in your too. <laughs> Kansas City Chiefs era. Yeah. So, um, you know, this last week, the, well, this week, it was just last night, was Thursday night football, and we had our red on red uniforms. And so it was really fun um, for Taylor to be in the stands, and um, we're in our red era. What I find hysterical, though, because you know this about me, I went to Ohio State, so um, you don't leave Ohio State without having a degree in football, correct? <laughs> right. So I love football, college football, pro football, like football is my sport to watch. So I am not a Swifty that is um, ignorant to the ways of the football. Correct. And you've known me long enough to know a fair amount about the Chiefs because I am also not new to the game of football. I also closet cheer for the Chiefs as long as they're not playing like the Bengals because then I get publicly shamed because I live in Cincinnati. I know. I know. It's funny, right? This is all very funny to me. Um, and because you and I are podcasters, like listening to the Kelsey brothers podcast and like the whole, these are like emerging of my, two of my favorite things, which is Taylor Swift and football. It's great. I'm wildly happy. I am wildly in love with the Kelsey family and would like to have them over for dinner. So if you're out there, anyone, and you happen to be listening to a midwife podcast for some reason, Kylie, Kelsey, hello, we love you. Um, I'm happy to host you all over here in Kansas City um, for a meal sometime. Yeah. And if um if Kelsey, if Kylie wants to come on and talk about like her birth experiences, we'd love to talk about that too. Mm, that would be awesome. I think she might be my favorite Kelsey, to be completely honest. Uh just the fact that she shamed Jason for taking a fan to labor and delivery was freaking cracking me up. It was. It was, was awesome. Like, this is like we could have some funny stories about things that husbands and support people like bring to the labor room. I think he would be a hoot to have as a support person though. You could just laugh the baby out all day long, twice on Sunday. Well, I love Taylor. I love Travis. I love all of the Kelsey's. I love football. It's just a good time right now. It's like the most wonderful people are like, Oh, Christmas, the most wonderful time of the year. I'm like, Oh no, football season. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So welcome to the podcast today. <laughs> we, you uh, didn't know we were going to talk about football. Nope. Nope. And if you don't love football, it's okay. We still love you. We love Glennon and she doesn't understand the things with the balls. So the soccer, the football. But she did. Did you see she tweeted to Taylor to say that she would explain the game of football to her? So I thought that was really generous. That's so sweet. I think maybe I'd take Abby's explanation. Although I have a lot to say about how Glennon describes sports and because I do not understand the soccer is that she talks about costumes and I love the soccer costumes, which I think is very funny because I know good and well that they're uniforms, but um, I would not call them costumes if you could. I, uh, she taught me what offside meant. Um, and that it's not offsides, it's offside. 
And I still don't always completely see it when I'm watching the game, but when they talk about it, I'm like, I know what that is. So thank you, Glennon. Thank you, Abby. And you're welcome when the Kelsey's come over. Yeah. I have all of them. Missy, I'll invite you to. Only, I mean, I will only fangirl for like a second. And can we have Jen Hatmaker and Tyler Merritt come as well? Now that Jen Hatmaker is gluten-free, I feel like I have to be invited to that party because I am the queen of gluten-free cooking. Yeah. If you guys don't know who all these people are, you should go follow them because they make my life complete. We'll just tag everybody and be like, please come and hang out with us and be on our podcast. And we can talk about vaginas if you really want to, but I'm sure we could find a million other topics that we could come with to talk to as well. We could, we could. Um, I am going to give a shout out quickly before we start on today's topic, because we've had lots of podcast followers and friends who have been texting us and emailing us with ideas for shows. So we have a nice list of things coming up that are based on like listener preferences, which is awesome. I've also been, you know, in the Nashville area for the last week or so and have been like getting lots of taps on the shoulder of like, I'm listening to you and Kara talk about this. And, or I took a walk and was listening to you and Kara talk about that. And I'm like, it's pretty fun being in this area. That's kind of midwife heavy. And, um, a super midwifery friendly community where people are like listening to our podcast. So that's my shout out for the day. Um, so thanks for listening and always supporting us. We're wrapping up season seven today. That's awesome. Yeah. So cool. So, um, but I will say today's topic is hard. It is, it is. I, but you know, not everything that we do is easy. And as I say all the time, we can do hard things. So we can do the hard. Also, um, it's interesting. I'm going to lead into this by telling a little story about a med student that I was talking to who's really might be interested in doing OB after spending some days with us in labor and delivery. And I was like, you know, OB is like the one like really part of medicine that you can do that's almost always like good, happy, good things happen. I said, it's about 95%. Or more even. Yeah. When the 5% happens it's bad. And it's usually really bad. And it's really sad. And it's really hard to get over. And it's really like, it takes a lot to like process through some of those things. But I can't think of any other kind of medicine where you only have 5% bad. True. True. I always think that we're there with people most of the time on the best day of their life. Um, And what a privilege that is. But you're right, because when it's bad, it's about as bad as it can get. So that leads into, we're going to talk today about how we have difficult conversations. Yeah, I I think that means for us, like as midwives, like we have difficult conversations with learners. We have difficult conversations with students. We precept, we have difficult conversations with other healthcare professionals, with other collaborators, with people that we work professionally with, but we also have really difficult conversations with patients. I was just going to say, that's exactly what I think as well. There's different types of difficult. And I think the main focus today is more around those pick conversations with patients and delivering bad news or talking about unexpected outcomes or those kinds of things. But we don't want to dismiss that there are having difficult conversations exactly with what you said in the workplace, with our collaborators, with other healthcare providers with each other as partners in practice. I mean, those kinds of things can all 
um, have some difficulty to them, having a student that isn't performing well, all of those. So, um, but but really, I think what we intended to focus on mostly today is about delivering bad news and having difficult conversations. Exactly. So how do you want to start, Kara? Well, I, I think maybe we just first talk about what some of those things are that could be um, unexpected outcomes or bad news. And I think traditionally we think of, um, you know, miscarriage or pregnancy loss as a sensitive time. It's sometimes very difficult to know um, how to talk to patients. I'm always happy when my students have that experience while they're a student so that they're not trying to navigate that the first time when they're out in practice on their own. But that's kind of the traditional, but there's other times as well. Um, What do you think? um, When you think of it, what are some of the things that you think about? Well, that's one of the ones I was thinking of, like miscarriage, like when you're like in an office setting and you're seeing things that aren't what you want. Like a lot of times patients are scheduled for ultrasound and then come right into like an antepartum visit. And so mm-hmm. you're talking about maybe what has come up in an ultrasound and right. whether that's like something that's come up in an early, right? A first trimester, early second trimester ultrasound or something that's come up in anatomy scans, yeah. Um I think the other things I think about are like when we get genetic screenings back and what that looks like. But because I work in an intrapartum setting, I also am thinking about like when the bad things happen in labor and delivery. Yeah. Unexpected things happen in labor and delivery. And so I think as we talk about strategies, I'll share some of the things that I'm thinking of in the inpatient setting. Um about difficult conversations. And, um, I will say that I think that there's this, this podcast about difficult conversations also is about shared decision-making mm-hmm. and how we really stress that as a, I, I feel like as a core tenant of what we do as midwives is that we're really good at encouraging patients to be active members of their care team and participate mm-hmm. in their care. Um, so I think that thread needs to sort of be, um, spun through this conversation as well. Yeah. Let's definitely come back to that. Cause I do think that's an important part as well. Um, just to list off some other things that could be potentially really difficult to deliver the news or to share with patients would be a cancer diagnosis. Um, whether it's a breast mass that you feel or getting the mammogram back or a cervical cancer or something like that. Um, sexually transmitted infections. That's not a fun conversation. Um, there's lots of implications to that. And so that I'm like, don't get syphilis. The worst thing I've had to do in the last couple of weeks is be like your syphilis titer is positive, but at least we can treat it. I mean, true. It's true. We should get something you can create. Not a good, converse, fun conversation to have. Yeah, I wouldn't get it if I could avoid it. Um, you know, you talked about fetal anomaly, um, and also what I think could be one of the worst things is like um, diagnosing a fetal demise in triage. So someone comes in with decreased movement or something like that. Um, we've all heard the sound of someone receiving those that news um, and been around when that news had to be delivered and it's not easy. But I also think of things like infertility and difficulty conceiving and um, 
there's lots of different things that we do. And because we oftentimes are caring for people in very intimate situations, it can make things sometimes really difficult to talk about. Um, And so I completely agree with you about shared decision-making, but I think some of the most important things that we do as midwives is honesty. I always try to be honest, Um, not try to be, I would say I'm always honest. Um, And sometimes that's really hard for people, but I find that if you just give the news in an honest, straightforward manner, it's usually better received than if you laden it with tons of emotion and so forth. But compassion is important. And then also just really effective communication. So we're going to talk about some of that. I will say, as we go into this, because people are like, I'm never going to be good at this. It is never going to feel good. And I even struggle after 20 years of being an OB and 17, almost 18 years of being a midwife. Mm -hmm. I still struggle with what the right thing is to say in a lot of situations. And you're listening and you're thinking, I'm never going to be good at this. And, and I will say for you and I, who are super anxious people anyway, and we always want to say the right thing, like avoidance is such a strong, like coping mechanism to be like, I don't want to be this person. Like, I don't want to be the one who has to do this because I don't want to say the wrong thing. I think anything that you say in this situation most things that you say in this situation are going to be the right thing and you're never going to feel good about it. And if it comes from a place of honesty and compassion, it is most likely going to be the right thing to say. Correct. So So if it would be okay with you, I would like to talk about like some of the different components of a difficult conversation and break that down with some examples in each of those different components, because I think we'll talk about some sample language if that's okay. Great. Okay. So if we think of the components of a difficult conversation, it's oftentimes thinking about the prognosis, um, the values that you as a healthcare provider and the patient have, they may be different, but the values, uh, the relationship that you have with the person you're giving that you're having the conversation with emotions, symptoms, and then goals of care. And those all is kind of, if you think of it as a big circle, that each of those things has a relationship with each other. And we can break each of those things down and talk about them individually and give some different examples. So let's start at prognosis. Great. Okay. So the main thing is that you don't want to be vague and you want to address it clearly and directly. Just how we were saying, like, I think straightforward language and saying, here's what we're dealing with. Not like, I mean, you can say, I have some difficult news to share, but don't like laden it with all of your emotion. Just be direct and be clear. And then you can ask the patient what their understanding of the situation is and help them to make informed decisions from there. So you could say, what do you already know about this? Um, What do you want to know? And that can help you to know how far and how much information they can process at that time. I think that's super important when I think we have a lot of information in our heads. So just as an example, like if I'm talking to somebody about like, we've done an ultrasound and don't see heart tones in an early, like first or early second trimester ultrasound. um, I don't see heart tones. Here's what I know about this situation, right? It Mm -hmm. could be early. Your dates may be off. 
we, there are other diagnostic components I would like to look at. I are already am thinking about all the things to do as right. the practitioner, right? I'm already thinking like, we probably need to get serial quants. We probably need to do a repeat ultrasound in a week. If this still looks bad, what do we do? Do you want to have a DNC? Do you want, you know, a, you want medications like Miffy and Miso? Do you want just expectant management? There are all the ways to go. And I think some providers just lay all of that out there really quickly. And I appreciate you saying like, what do you want to know right now? What yeah. Or another approach I really like in th- these kinds of situations is, can I step away and let you absorb and come back? Mm-hmm. If I don't have anybody with them? Is there somebody I can call for you? Um, because I think a lot of times we're in these situations and you want to give a ton of information as the provider and they can't hear it yet. Right. Right. Agreed. Well, and I think what you were talking about leads right into the next part that I wanted to talk about, which is values. And so values are oftentimes what we think of, of like people's individual or personal ethics, what they find important, where they, you know, where they place value. Um, And a lot of that has to do with our sociocultural background, our family unit. Um, It could be faith-based. There's lots of things that help people determine what their own values are, and they may differ from someone else in the exact same situation. Um, But it really is usually what's the most important thing to the patient. And so when you know what their values are, it allows you to tailor your plan or outline a medical management plan or give them choices knowing that they value certain things over the other and it can help you knowing their goals and priorities. Then we go to relationship. Um, and it's not just the relationship that you as a provider have with the patient, but also their relationship with others. The one that I always think of with this is um, in pregnancy loss, I always have a conversation with the um, patient in front of me and their partner or support persons, because um, particularly if they are, you know, different genders, different, different sex, they oftentimes handle things in very different situations and receive news in very different situations, different ways. And so understanding their relationships with their children, their relationship with their partner, with their parents, community, workplace, all of those different things are really good. Um, And they may choose different interventions or different medical plan based on what the effect would be on those family members, on those loved ones, on the people they have relationships with. So understanding their like social web, social network um, can really help with shared decision-making as well. Yep. I, I was just thinking that um, when, as you were talking about like the partner responses, right? Because Mm -hmm. it really does. I think as women, we oftentimes are like trying to protect the people around us. Yes. Even when we're absorbing bad news. And Mm -hmm. so um, it's just the idea of like, are they able to absorb the news for themselves because they're also trying to protect those people around them from that news? Yeah. And I've always been someone that's like 
really open with my children. We talk about difficult things in our family. We're very open, but I know that others aren't that way. And so you want to honor their wishes and desires and understand their relationships and that it may be different than what your relationships are with your own family or loved ones. So, yeah. Um, this all feeds into emotions, which, um, is that we can accept and acknowledge that all emotions are valid. People can react in very different ways and whichever way they react, um, we need to be accepting and honoring of those and provide empathy and support. Um, it really provides a lot of trust. It helps nurture trust, um, and honesty between you and the patient. I think the next part that's really interesting is thinking about symptoms. So sometimes we are having trouble giving the diagnosis or finding the right words to say, and the patient's already thinking about like, what is this going to mean? Like, what, what is my experience going to be with this? And um, what are, what are, how is this going to feel or how am I going to cope with this? And that creates a lot of stress for them because they've already like gone down the road a ways um, and want to know. And they, the unknown can sometimes be worse than the known. So helping them understand what all of the different implications can be and what the experience might be like and being honest with that. Um, I recently heard someone say that like getting an IUD can be a little um, uncomfortable. Uh, That may be one person's experience. Most people would say it's slightly more than uncomfortable. Yeah, the subjectivity of people's experience cannot be underrated. I right. think you have to absolutely be acute. It was funny. I was talking to a nurse last night and I said, I think my pain tolerance is different than most people's. And it was just because like we were talking about fully like uh, cervical ripening, right? And balloons. Yeah. And I had a balloon in at home for seven hours subject for a whole nother podcast. But I was like, I wasn't really that uncomfortable. I mean, I walked around, it fell out. I went to the hospital, I had a baby. That was just the whole, I mean, that's a very short version, but we put, you know, we put fully balloons in lots of people who can't tolerate the fact that they've got a a cervical ripening balloon in. So I don't think, I think we are good at at understanding that pain looks different for everybody else, but like psychosocial adaptation to situations also looks different. It also looks different depending on like how resilient you are. What have your life experiences been? How, what experiences have you had that have had to make you like resolve to be able to handle this, that kind of news, or have you been raised in a situation where you, your, your life has been, I guess, not as challenged as other people's may have been. Um, the whole idea of resiliency, I think, is a whole another topic of a podcast as well. But well, and that gets into those adverse childhood events and what the impact is on health and reaction to events and those sorts of things. So you're right. We could that's another topic that would be great to delve further into. Um, but I appreciate what you were just saying because I think that I oftentimes want people to know what the range of experiences could be. I don't want to make it, I mean, I want them to be prepared. Let's say it's for a painful procedure. I want them to be prepared that it could be quite painful. And this is what some people experience, but I usually tell it in a range because I don't want to forecast it as worse. And then they then experience it bad. So, you know, I've I've said this before, I'm kind of into affirmations and that kind of thing, because I think sometimes if we tell ourselves something's going to be horrible, it then is horrible. Um, And so helping people understand that it's a range and people experience things in different ways and that this is a normal reaction, that can be really helpful. Yeah. I think 
not setting somebody up for things being horrible. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So the last part is goals of care. And I think this is really, really important. And I think this is where we oftentimes shine as midwives and as nurses and so forth, because it really isn't about what our goals are always. Um, It's more important to us what the goals are of the patient, the family, so forth in front of us. And so um, it may be what their desires are. And maybe their desires for an unplanned pregnancy. Um, I we didn't mention that as difficult news, but that can certainly be difficult. Um, it may be acceptability of what different treatment options. So they may not be willing to consider a certain treatment option at all. Well, that's off the table. But what are the ones that would be acceptable to them? Um, and then obviously, advanced care planning is really important as well. So that kind of summed up like what the different components are of a difficult conversation. Um, But then we can talk a little bit more about um, what are some of the things that you can do in these situations that will help set you up for success. Um, And, and you mentioned one is when do they want, like, are they in a place that they can even receive it? So like, what is the setting right now? Um, Is this the right time? to deliver the news? Is this the right place? Do they have the right people around them? I think that's really, really important. Yeah. And, um, I think what's, so there are lots of ways with our technology now for people to receive news. It's not always in an office setting. It was, I think, easier 20 years ago when you didn't have electronic medical records and you didn't have my health and you didn't have, you know, um, just like, all of these different ways where news can come to you because some conversations I feel like should not be had on the phone and Correct. some conversations should not be had via like messaging on my health. Um, I think some conversations need to be had in person and that used to not be a choice. You just had every conversation in, per- in person. And now I feel like patients are getting access to their test results and to findings prior to providers having had reviewed them. And so then that is also a difficult situation because you can't even preemptively handle that conversation because somebody already has like black and white in front of them what it says. Yeah. And then they're Googling what it says. Um, and what does this imaging mean? I have a really incredible friend um, that has left the University of Kansas. Now she's at University of Alabama in Birmingham, Dr. Heather Nelson Brantley. And she's doing incredible research on just that thing that you mentioned of how, what is the patient experience and what is the provider experience of immediate access to records and results. And it's really amazing, but you're right. It has drastically changed how we have conversations with people because oftentimes they can see the results before we get a chance to have that conversation with them. I will tell you some of the most painful conversations that I have had to have have been patients who were seen in the office on Friday, had blood drawn, got results at like 7 PM. I am the person on call or in triage or fielding the phone calls when they call and say, well, my quant was 5,000 and now it's 4,020. And I'm like, what does that mean? Yeah. And then you're in a position on Friday night, having never met the patient sometimes and not knowing their story without going through their whole chart and knowing all of the things to provide expectant management slash guideline for that particular patient. That 
is a really tough spot to be in as a provider. Agreed. Agreed. Um, So, you know, you mentioned the EHR. I think that's one of the important things that we have available to us now as a resource is that there's lots of different documentation templates and things that can help you because in those emotional situations, it's easy to forget the steps. But if you have a template that you can have in front of you, making sure that you hit on each of those different components as you have the patient there in front of you is so helpful. And then there's really good tools out there that can help us through some of these as we think of a, a stepwise. I loved that you said stepwise kind of progression. Um, so uh, can I tell you about a couple of the tools that I found? Absolutely. Okay. So um, one of them is Vital Talk. And then um, the Serious Illness Conversation Guide. So if you go to um, vitaltalk.org, I had to look this up. It's really incredible. But it is how it tells you what you say or do through each step of the stepwise progression. So the first step is like getting ready. That's the info people in place. It has things that you can say, like, let me take a minute to make sure I've got what I need, Um, making sure you have all the information you need, that sort of thing. The next step is understanding, and that's what the patient knows. Next is inform. So you're starting starting out with a headline. Um, The CT scan shows that the cancer has gotten worse. It's very clear. It states exactly what it is that you're going to lead in with. And then the next step is demonstrating empathy um, and equipping the patient for the next step. Um, It then goes um, in like they have a whole stepwise guide of once you have the prognosis, again, going stepwise through. So Vital Talk is an awesome resource. This would be, we've talked before about our little peripheral brain. This would be something that I would probably have in my little peripheral brain because just as you said, Missy, it is, um, it's an emotional reaction that we have when we have to have these conversations and it's natural for us to kind of go into some of our own mechanisms of avoidance or those kinds of things. So really knowing step-by-step what to do is so helpful. Yeah, I love that. Um, and tell me where to find the, um, vital talk tool. It's vitaltalk.org and it's under their difficult conversations. Um, and then they also have a tab that talks about prognosis. Um, I found the website to be very easy to find what I needed. Um, really great info there. Love. The other one is, um, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how to say the name, but it's Ariadne Labs. It's A-R-I-A-D-N-E and labs. So ariadnelabs.org. And they have a really incredible tool called the Serious Illness Conversation Guide, and it uses patient-tested language. So these are things that have been tried and tested to make sure that they are the things that patients want to hear, that work well, that communicate the information well. And again, it very much goes step-by-step by the setup and then assessment, share, explore and close. And so that's just another awesome tool in there. It gives you the language to use. It tells you to think about the um, setting. It tells you what things you should be looking for. I even love that it tells you when you should pause in the conversation, Um, which when I'm nervous, I talk a lot Um, and I try to fill the empty space because it can be uncomfortable, but I love that it tells you to pause. Um, And so that can be another really great stepwise approach 
to having a serious illness conversation, you could adapt it, obviously, to receiving any unexpected news, unexpected outcomes, bad news, that kind of thing. It doesn't have to necessarily be a serious illness, but you could adapt that language. It's uh, another great tool for people to have kind of at their fingertips. So I think I've hit on the things that I wanted to share. I think um, you maybe had an example that you wanted to share um, with the listeners as we think about like actually putting this into action. Yeah. And I want to know, um, for those of you who know, and have been listening for a long time, I have a son who's an actor and I think about a lot of things in the context of what, what he does, um, in his, you know, preparation for theater. And he will tell you like the only way he gets good at a role is to continue to play the role. Right. So about a week before every show that he's in, he is basically in character the whole week, which is hysterical to me, but it makes me think about things like this. And so the idea of repetitive like practice especially for anybody who's a student if you're like hanging around like waiting for a delivery or you know you're you know in a lull of something that you're doing clinically like this is a great opportunity for you to just practice in a super low stakes setting right you and I talk a lot about like when is a great time to learn to do things. And I always say like, it's when it's your, when it's low stakes, like when it, you know, when you're not talking to an actual patient or, you know, when is it a good time to get good at putting IUDs in, like doing it in the lab, right. Over and over and over again, when it's a low stakes situation. So I think rehearsing how you may have a conversation um, is really helpful. I will tell you in all of these years, I have gotten much better at delivering bad news in the intrapartum setting than I have ever been in the antepartum setting. I find it very unnerving for myself in the antepartum setting. I know I have the information in my head that I think I need to convey to the patient, but I think it's really still a very difficult situation when you're dealing with um, like cervical cancer, STIs, pregnancy loss, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But I will say the one thing I have very much honed, and this is the example I was going to give you is like, what happens in the intrapartum setting when things aren't going the way you want them to? And for me, it is a lot of anticipatory guidance. Yes. It's not just when everything hits the fan. It is I want you to be prepared for what this looks like in case it goes sideways. Yes. So I think part of for me, difficult conversations is we would love for every situation in, in our OBGYN world to be ideal, but it is not. So I find that the more anticipatory guidance I do with patients about things that could go wrong allows patients to feel at least a bit more in control if something does go wrong. Yeah. And so for me, that means like when I admit somebody for induction, the first thing I talk about is this could be a long process. I would love to start your induction and for you to have a baby in eight hours, but there are a lot of things that could happen. So anticipating what that's going to look like. And I'm a little biased because my doctoral research is on why women are dissatisfied with induction of labor. So I do a lot of, I think, different things. Um mm-hmm. And I talk to people about induction, but that is one of them. Or if I walk into a room and a baby's tracing has not looked good, you know, I have, a, I have a lot of conversations and it's always before things go downhill. 
It's, Hey, I just wanted to come and talk to you about what's going on with the baby's tracing. And it's exactly what you said. I will pull the tracing over and I will say, let's look at this together. And let me explain to you what is going on in this tracing Mm -hmm. and concerned. And then I'll talk about like, the baby's having ax cells. That's great. We know that the variability is good. That means it has good acid base balance. Or if it doesn't have those things, why? And I will talk about the interventions that we will try to employ. I work in a place where we do OBET, which is like our OB emergency team. Mm-hmm. If I call an OBET to your room, a lot of people are going to show up. It is going to be very scary. It is going to be anesthesia, the attending physicians, the surgeon, the NICU team, whoever might need to be possible for something that is emergently happening. But again, the anticipatory guidance of if something is going sideways, I want you to know that we have already talked about it. I was thinking of the exact same thing, but even in a more controlled situation, like you're doing an induction for growth restriction or you've got meconium in the fluid. I always try to have a conversation about like when it's time for delivery, all of these people are going to come in. This is what they're doing. It may get loud, but I want you to focus on me and your partner, you know, like those kinds of things. So I agree with you helping people. Um, it's, I mean, we're familiar with it. We know that's not, it doesn't scare us, but I mean, how other people may only experience labor and delivery once or twice in their life. And that's when they're giving birth. And so helping them know what to expect is really helpful. I think we can do a better job of this in the office too. Yes. And so when I talk about anticipatory guidance, people are like, oh, but why would you talk about that if it's not something that they need to worry about? The reason we do pap smears is to look at cervical cytology to make sure somebody is not going to have invasive cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. Cervical cancer is so treatable. It, to me, is one of the great tragedies in the world that people still die of cervical cancer, Mm -hmm. knowing that we have a screening test for it and that it's so treatable. Um, why we do people are like, Oh, I got my mammogram. Great. We do this because we are looking specifically to make sure you do not have breast cancer. I tend to be, when we were talking about difficult conversations, I tend to be very direct about why I am doing something and why I care about it. Yes. Um, I think the directness of those conversations, if then I have to give bad news, it's, Oh, Missy told me that the reason that she did this is because she is looking for this thing. And that's why. Um, If I see a lesion that looks like herpes in the office, I will say, I really need to do a viral culture of this place. It concerns me that it is tender. It concerns Mm -hmm. me about how it looks. And in, in some of those instances, I take pictures with my phone and like show the patient, like, this is what I'm looking at. This is what I think. I'm gonna do a culture of this. This is what this potentially means, Um, Mm -hmm. but let's wait until we get the test results back. So for me, anticipatory guidance before a test result comes back for me is important. Mm -hmm. Um, And because the midwife in me, also the educator in me is also like, how much education and patient teaching can I do before a result comes back so that I have to do less of it? on the other side, if that makes sense. It does. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so when you're talking about like, th- let's talk about this herpes thing, because this is like, I feel like some of the worst, one of the worst things to have to tell people. And mostly because I tell teenagers, you don't want the things that begin with H because we can't get rid of them. Right. So HSV, HIV, HPV are bad. They're viral and sometimes they clear on their own, but in most cases we can't get rid of them once you have them. And herpes being the one that I'm like, you know, like it's the prevalence is pretty high um, of people in society that have herpes. So if you've never heard that, just you heard me say it, it's pretty high Um, and you don't get rid of it. And so, and even if you don't have a lesion on your mouth or on your genitals, if you have had herpes, you have a 10% asymptomatic shed rate. So even though you think you might not be giving it to somebody because you don't have a lesion, you have a 10% asymptomatic shed rate. So when you're delivering that kind of news, right? So mm-hmm. if you're culturing somebody for herpes, the best thing you can do to lead into a difficult conversation is to have the conversation when you're doing the culture. This is yeah. why I'm doing the culture. This is what this looks like. It, I, there would, I would love to be wrong. Yeah. But I'm doing this so that we know and can treat it. And then, you know, going forward that this is something that you need to be aware of and how to manage it. Well, and with herpes, I generally like, let's say we know, we know it's herpes. We have a diagnosis. I will talk with them about knowing whether it's type one or type two is helpful. I mean, you can get either in either place. Um, You can have it wherever, but type one generally has less outbreaks. Type one generally is less painful. Type two is more painful. Type two often has more lymphadenopathy. Type two tends to have more recurrence. Those kinds of things are helpful as anticipatory guidance as well, because it could help someone to be prepared that they're not shocked at how things go. But then you also have the conversation that some people never have another outbreak after their initial. So um, really helping people to understand what the the variation can be is helpful. I also think that when pregnancy, we're having pregnancy conversations that maybe mm-hmm. the ones that we are likely having are about around pre- early pregnancy loss because in OB now, we have so many teams of specialists. Oftentimes we don't have to be the ones who are having difficult conversations about things in pregnancy. Yeah. We might identify an anomaly on like a basic ultrasound, but then we're sending them to a specialist to really have the conversation about the prognosis and what that means for the pregnancy and the future life of the infant, that kind of thing. Correct. Um, I work, we are probably so, especially me who works in like a high risk center, right? Mm-hmm. I will see on somebody's um, pregnancy summary when they come to labor and delivery, all of the referrals that they have had, right? It'll be, they were seen in FCAB, which is our fetal center. I, they have been seen by MFM. They have been seen by genetics. They have been seen by fetal connections. They have been seen by the NICU team. I know that those are the people who have had deep in-depth conversations about goals for care, um, prognosis, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. I think as midwives, we are not having those kinds of conversations about babies with lethal fetal anomalies or genetic variants. There are lots of other people I think that are having those conversations, but I think being able to talk about your abnormal quad screen or your abnormal tetra screen or your abnormal nips, right? Mm -hmm. is a conversation to be able to have. I think 
the 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 one you practice on if you're a student is how to talk to somebody about no fetal heart tones mm-hmm. in, in, in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. That is the most likely difficult conversation that you will have in your career. Um, that will be the most difficult of the conversations to have. Um, and oftentimes uh, there are so many varied responses to that kind of news, um, that I I think you had a good suggestion earlier, um, of the, when, maybe when you're in clinical and things are kind of slow, talk to your preceptor about what their language is and what they use. Um, and I think, you know, Stephanie Tillman does such a great, great job of giving us different scripts that we can use in so many different situations, but having a kind of general script, but you're going to figure out what yours is based on what you've seen done well, what you've seen not done so well. Um, but figuring that out for yourself is going to be really, really helpful. This is like, a little off topic, but something that I find really important. And I had a preceptor tell me this when I was in school in the dark ages. Um, and she said, when you're in a precepted situation, you're going to learn a ton of things that you will want to do in your practice and a ton of things that you won't want to do in your practice. And no midwife that you spend time with is going to practice exactly the way you want to do it. It's an art of pulling the things that you have heard and seen from other places into a practice that is uniquely your own. and Uniquely and authentically your own, right? Yes. And so it's interesting because when students come with me, they're always like, I want to go with you because I want to hear your spiel. And I always say, yours may look different, right? When I do postpartum teaching, I talk about the three things that nurses don't usually talk about, right? The things that I hear most when patients call me a week postpartum. Um, I just, I frame things differently in my own unique and authentic way. So the Mm -hmm. same will be true when you're having difficult conversations. And for me, um, when I was a, a baby midwife, I'd maybe been out of school for maybe a year, maybe somewhere in that one to two year range, a primary patient of mine had a full term fetal demise and she didn't need any words from me. She just needed me to hold her hand. And she only needed me to be the provider that was there when she birthed that baby. Yeah. And that was all. Where in another scenario of life, I would have had to have a whole different conversation. But in that particular case, she needed me to come to the room and hold her hand and be the one that was there when she pushed her baby out. Yeah. And those experiences in your career will be transformative in a way that even your thousandth delivery will not be. Agreed. I, you know, I think that these are the things that leave imprints on us. Um, and handling a difficult situation can sometimes be as satisfying um, and as meaningful as, you know, the best birth that you've ever been part of, or I, I mean, totally not trying to be funny, but I love it when I give a, when I do a good pelvic exam and the patient's like, Oh my God, I was so scared. And that was amazing. That is transformative. Um, You can make a huge difference in people's lives. 
And so I agree with you that this is, these are the things that are really, really important. This even means like, I walked into a room a couple nights ago of a patient that wasn't even mine. And it was, she was totally like, had just was losing her mind trying to push her baby out. And I didn't do anything except for, I sat at the head of her bed and I whispered in her ear and I was like, you're strong and you can do this. And you're going to breathe with me and you're going to push and you're going to have a baby. And it's um, those kinds of things um, that I feel like will mean more than the everyday slash routine things that um, you may see or hear in your career. So just remember that your difficult conversations and your dip, the things that you find hard will be the things that will be transformative to your patients. So, um, I don't, I, again, practicing is going to be really important and feeling at least comfortable that you have the information that you need to like, provide anticipatory guidance, to provide a knowledge base for patients when they need it, to be somebody that will just hold a hand. Yeah. Silence. I sometimes it's just the quiet. It's yeah. like um you and I talk a lot about this. And in uh I tend to when I need somebody when I need someone in my anxiety or my depression, I need just a, somebody, I don't need somebody to, I don't need them to have words. I don't need to go someplace and do something. I want somebody to sit next to me on the couch and watch trash TV with me and not have any words. So in these difficult conversations, sometimes there is no conversation. It is. Right. I just need somebody to sit with me. Yeah. I agree. While I am grieving, while I am processing and reconciling and all the words that we use in these kinds of situations. So do not discount just therapeutic presence in situations that are difficult. Agreed. Agreed. Well, this has not been a difficult conversation. Um, I don't think uh, we ever have problems talking openly, honestly, and authentically to each other. But I hope this has been helpful to uh, students and new graduates as you think about some of the ways that you will have to deliver bad news or have difficult conversations. Yeah. So thanks for joining us for the Engaged Midwife Podcast. We can't wait to talk to you again. Take care. Take care.